they look different, they behave differently. Yeah. And one thing they always have, always have, always, iPads. Welcome to Surviving Society. With Chantel and Tiso. This season's broad theme is... Reconfiguring whiteness. We are really excited today to be joined by Dr. Tina Sicker, who is a lecturer at Newcastle University, or well, University of Newcastle in Media, Culture and Heritage. We are going to be breaking down some science today, some race science. And we have done this on quite a few episodes more recently, haven't we? With Angela, we've touched on it, but this, with Tina, it's... When I first read the paper, I was like, oh, every science. But no, it's it translates well because it touches, it overlaps with sociology, overlaps with ideas of race and racial hierarchy and capitalism. Like, why are we doing this, man? Like, what's the purpose of this? Yeah. Profits? I don't know. But anyway, we'll discuss. Before we get into it, Tina, could you tell us a little bit about your academic journey? Like, who you are, what you've worked on, what you're doing now? So I grew up in, I was born in Vancouver in uh, Canada, British Columbia. I did my undergraduate degree in communication at Simon Fraser University, and then I moved to Ottawa, which is very cold, and I did my master's in mass communication, and then my PhD in communication and culture at York University in Toronto. And then I came back to Simon Fraser, did my postdoc, uh, for two years with Andrew Feenberg, who had the Canada Research Chair in Philosophy of Science and Technology. Taught a little bit, was looking for work, had contract, you know, sort of precarious labor thing for a couple of years, and then I applied to and got the position at Newcastle. And I moved over at the beginning of 2017. Okay. Oh my God, I'm really embarrassed. Mm. Like, so much, like, this country. Brings it. You've come over at Brings It Time. Just the political shambles that are in at the moment. Like it's already, it's always been a bit of a political shambles, but it's, been, it's particularly bad right now. So yeah, sorry on behalf. Well, of we do um, like I, I just voted in the Canadian election, um, and by a dint of like being Commonwealth and a British resident, and I can vote in your election as well. So I voted, in, <laughs> I voted in local elections in Canada, then local elections here, and then, then the. Federal election and now I have to vote. <laughs> general election. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting, actually. Yeah, it's yeah. And it's just Canada and Australia and maybe New Zealand, I think. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It's this sort of strange yeah, colonial empire-esque. Yeah. Yes. That's interesting, isn't it? So yeah. if, if, you, if your politics lean on the left, you could swing things in countries that don't live. That's amazing. It's great. Yeah. 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 And that was one of the first things I did was like, I'm voting. <laughs> <laughs> Good. That's what we like. That's what we like. To, that's what we like to hear. So yeah, sorry. Carry on. So yes. And then you're at Newcastle. Yes. So I've been there for just under two years, and um, I'm working on issues uh, around uh, feminist science studies and social studies of science, race and food culture, and also environmental science. And what are you going to talk to us about today? I am going to talk about race and sort of genetic testing and personalized diets, nutrigenomics. Okay, can you explain what a personalized diet is? Yes, what has been happening is that when um, people uh, get their ancestries done, they've started to have a little box you can check to get a personalized diet, which is purportedly um, perfected to, you know, your genetics specifically. So it'll tell you things about, you know, you, you know, 
are, are susceptible to X, Y, and Z. And nutrigenomics is about saying that, you know, you should have this kind of diet for optimal health. And, and so a lot of it leans towards science and categories that I argue perpetuate and reify race as something that is actually existent, which we know it's not. So I argue that personalized diets and ancestry tests by default are uh, reinscribing race as a fact of reality, you know, rather than something that we need to move away from. So what would you say to someone like me, when I see these sort of gen- genetic testings, and particularly the ones where they sort of are able to ap- allegedly trace your ancestry back to where you originally came from, so I don't necessarily know where everyone in my family came from, and the idea of finding that out sort of feels quite like that it might be quite harmonious and that it would be fulfilling for me mm-hmm. but at the same time as you say like what am I trying to do am I, am I trying to reify or confirm that I belong to a particular racialized category like how how do we sort of come come to terms with the fact that a lot of people want to know where they've come from yes and whilst I... also not yet yeah, I think it's approach it as almost being exploitative, right? Okay. That it's exploiting that feeling of wanting to know, you know, in a era of kind of movement and flows and and you know maybe dislocation that, the slave trade as well like yeah, the, the scale yeah. of that yeah yeah of you know trying to find a sense of grounding and community and where you're from and I think that 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 desire is packaged and exploited by some of these ancestry companies who are saying that, you know, we can offer that to you. And I think a lot of, you know, issues of cultural appropriation can get into that as well because then people decide that, you know, I am now X and I'm going to, you know, and that's not sort of how it, how it works. I really like the critique of um, identity and belonging from Indigenous communities in Canada and the United States where they're sort of saying that, you know, that you can't say anything about belonging to a particular tribal or having a tribal affiliation or identity of being indigenous. That's not something that is biological. That is something that is cultural, right? And so I think it's really difficult because it's something that people want. But if you look at the way the science works, we were saying before that it it just tells you that you have a somewhat similar genetic profile to people in a certain area at this time, right? And, and I mean, that doesn't really say much because the population, the population that they're testing are there now, who, you know, people move. Who's to say that that group of people were not there, you know, 100 years ago? And so it's, it, it doesn't, you know, it's sort of like to what, what end are we doing this? Um, and I think it really reinscribes race as a material fact, as a reality, which it is not. Because um, often I've been reading your paper, isn't it? Like I can almost see it as, a, as an attempt to recode race, like race has been recoded from race to culture. So I move race to population. So I still can talk about race, but not in overt terms, right? It's a proxy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That if, you, if we talk about populations, we can... I mean, it still brings back race because we still talk about, okay, you can talk about geography, but within that, we still default to race. That's still something that's always there. 
And so it's an easy way to kind of mask race within a so-called neutral um, set of, of terms. And doing that, I guess, yeah, through diet as well. What is very sort of neoliberal, this is how you look after yourself, and we've we've matched it with with your ancestors, so we know exactly what you need, what you need to buy, what you need to how you need to live in order to live in a way that's healthy. But then yeah. but this is the whole idea of the enlightenment, man, to reach your maximised potential as a human individual, right? Yes. So this is straight Western thinking, mm-hmm. a straight Western philosophy to to understand that you can be that you can be that's kind of the outgrowth of rationality. You can live that rational life. Your diet's rationalised to the point where this is what's best for you to be the optimal human yes. being. And it's a powerful and it resonates powerfully with that kind of Western notion of of being. Yes, yes, and and I think that when you get employers putting you into these wellness programs, of which genetic profiling are becoming more and more popular, is about making you an optimum employee, a productive employee. And then that brings into issues of surveillance Mm -hmm. as well. And then, yes, I think that's a very uh, reductive view of the body and, you know, how it should look and how it's just very, yeah, it's very Western, it's very colonial, it's very reductive. See, when, when I when you used to think of that, I was, I was thinking of, like, Max Weber's uh, uh, kind of instrumental cage of rationality. So this is ever-increasing, yeah. m- m- ever-increasing move to efficiency, right? Mm-hmm. So right now, instead of we're going to tell you what's the best thing to eat to get there faster, so it's ever-increasing efficiency. So you don't need to know. I'll tell you now. And, it, and it's made exactly for you. Yeah. On that kind of notion, that kind of, in Weberian terms, that kind of rationality is inescapable. Yeah. You've got to keep going down that path. And... The science seems to be heading that way. Yeah. And it's moving to private companies who are proliferating that kind of, mm-hmm. and promoting that kind of idea. Yeah, and, and I, I find it really a problem, you know, when, when it gets down to functionalizing food and how food is really something that is very cultural. Um, it can also be a form of activism. Mm-hmm. You know, I think about the way that soul food in the States has been used as a form of political practice. And that is just completely taken out of the conversation, you know, and how um, even, you know, movements towards vegetarianism or veganism, and that brings you into conversations around climate. Um, and, and you know, um, food and well-being and sociality and conviviality, that, that, you know, the sort of sociology of food and culture is left out of that model as well. So I think, like, you know, it's based on faulty science. It reinscribes a race, and it reduces food culture to its most instrumental. And I think that, you know, when it's done by private companies where you, and with DNA, you know, it becomes very dangerous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's what, the, like, you were saying to you about, um, where were you when someone was collecting DNA? Oh, no, they, they were saying about a um, football match in America. So they were offering people as they went to a football match free DNA tests and people just taking it as they go in which sounds weird but why would you do that mm-hmm. but I, I was kind of at the last point when you said like um, to what end why are these companies doing it and it seems to me it's, it's, it's the further capitalism if I can if I can reduce messy things like cultures to a monoculture I can repackage and sell I, I was reading Adorno's, Adorno and Hukam's culture industry mm-hmm. if I can repackage it and I can just change one thing and sell to a group of people a particular brand or a particular item and I know they'll buy it because I said it's for them Yeah. 
And it's this kind of idea that capitalism is always looking for new ways to grow and exploit, and new markets to exploit. And mm-hmm. the body is just one particular market, like the growth of the vegan market, the growth of like wellness and training and yes. all these things. So I train at a gym that was quite messy and working class. But around then, I've seen the growth of these clean, efficient, programmed, and it's all computerised gyms that 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 kind of match that kind of culture industry yeah. kind of blueprint. Yeah, and it's something that's so hard to get out of because even myself, like, I will write about it and then I will be like, no, I can't have that piece of cake because, you know, because you're worried about, you know, weight gain and things like that because it's this very ingrained thing. And, and also the exercise regimes, I've... I've I've actually been, I was, um, when I was in Canada before I came here, I was, um, I went a lot to uh, bar method classes. Um, And so now I reflect back on it where it's this like downtown, upper middle class, mostly white women coming together and then doing this like excruciating, you know, workout where you're, you know, when you do like spin, you're sometimes berated by the instructor, mm-hmm. but it's this kind of like putting yourself through these ordeals to attain what is really functional body that is meant to be a more productive body in a very, very confined and narrowed, narrowly defined way. I think that when we get to issues of race and nutrigenomics, where it's like, okay, we can now potentially match your perfect diet to your culture and your race and it's done in a way that is meant to be like look we're being more inclusive but actually they're not because it's just reinscribing race as distinct right as and and if we are it's inserting it within sorry tina but it's also inserting it within the everyday as well it's 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 reinscribing race sort of outside of politics but also no this is what's good for you like follow this racialized regime and this will give you a better quality of life within your everyday yeah and that in itself is possibly a little bit more sinister yeah and there's actually um, they haven't focused nutrigenomics in, in sort of doing uh, race-specific, but it is, you know, in the literature said to be the next thing they're going to do. And it's always, the example is the uh, medication Biddle, which was um, a number of years ago, it started to be, it's like a heart medication, I believe, and it was marketed towards, it, the argument was that it was best for people who are black. Um, it was a heart medication that they started to actually just market to people who are black. And when you go back and look at their tests, it was so flawed. And it turns out that they did it because by recategorizing it in terms of race, they were able to extend their patents. Mm-hmm. So it was really nothing about, and so it's this idea that, you know, oh, we are, you know, being more inclusive, and now we're having medications that are tailored to different, you know, people who are racialized or not in, you know, trials. But we established that there is more genetic diversity between races than within races, right? So why are we doing this unless it's just a marketing ploy? I think that's the sinister thing. I think what struck me was the level of the number of private companies looking to uh, kind of use this technology 
to well just for profit really mm-hmm. that's what it, so looking to sell a product to increase shareholder value they're willing to do that at the expense of what social cohesion mm-hmm. which is scary to say the least and the <laughs> and the differences the sort of racialized differences between health outcomes are socially determined mm-hmm. you know yes. it's it's a fact of being in an area with high levels of pollution, of being under more stress uh, for not having access to, you know, living in a food desert or, you know, not having access to, you know, safe and healthy and sustainable food. And that differences in health outcomes between these constructed racial categories are actually an effect of social structures, not of genetics. But and. That continual insistence of being science doing those kind of things continues for for black people anyway, of science being that thing that looking to hurt us. Mm-hmm. So at, for profit or if it's for purely experimentation, mm-hmm. science has a history of hurting black people or using black people to further their own ends. Yes, and I think that that is something that is very dangerous as well. And, you know, and also pathologizing in a way too because there's this tendency also to take certain diseases and say that they are diseases of a certain category of people, right? Mm-hmm. That it's, um, oh, what's that? Sickle uh, cell. Sickle cell, yes, mm-hmm. yes. Where, you know, sickle cell is actually... Sickle cell anemia is, is actually a, a function of you know, people who have the genetic predisposition to it are people who live in areas of high numbers of mosquitoes because it's meant malaria. to, yeah, for malaria. And so they always say that it's a black disease in the United States, but it's actually not because you go to any hot areas and parts of Greece have sickle cell anemia, parts of India have sickle cell anemia. You know, if, you know, there were large groups of Greek people there would and move to the States and had it, would it be Greek disease? Probably not, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Or to say that, you know, um, people who are South Asian are predisposed to diabetes. Mm-hmm. That comes down to social determinants of health, not to mm-hmm. genetic predisposition necessarily. So would you say the issue then is science needs to move away from certain kind of norms and values that it has and be more holistic, like look at things like things it would never consider scientific in inverted commas, culture and social factors that you look at. So but how do you quantify those terms when you're doing a scientific experiment? How would you reproduce how would you reproduce that? Yeah, and I think that the first thing that has to happen is that scientists and people working within the scientific community have to admit that you know, there are values in science, right? So a lot of times it's this um, aura of neutrality. And I think that sometimes that is meant to be a way to forestall scientific skepticism that is harmful, like, like climate denial. So, you know, in coming out and saying that, oh, you know, we have that science is messy and that science is consensus-based and that it is, you know, open to interpretation you leave the door open for science deniers to come in and, you know, say that, oh, then we don't know anything and Mm. vaccines are, you know, a secret, whatever, (laughs) you know. Um, And so I think, like, the first step is to really say that there are values in science and that those values are productive values um, and that we can have more pro-social values and that um, what we have to do then is to say, Whenever we are making decisions about what kind of science to do or what to study is, is why, 
you know, and so that's why some of my work in um, feminist empiricism is really about articulating scientific values that are about, you know, heterogeneous methods that are about, you know, um, inclusivity and that are about, you know, looking at things in different ways. What's a heterogeneous method? Um, so, yeah, so it's it's it basically a method where we're not just doing the scientific method. We're going to look at, you know, storytelling. We're going to look at anecdotes. We're going to look at okay. observations yeah. that are outside, you know, that, that we're looking for different models mm. of science. And so I think that under a framework like that, these kind of questions yeah. would be... You know, we wouldn't have the models that we have. Um, it's really interesting, some of the things you've just been saying then as well. It reminds me of when we were with um, Angela Saini and reading her book as well, like the pushback from, like, I mean, it's, it's bad to homogenise the science community, like, they're not the, but people that are strict that science is objective, all this stuff. She's had a really big pushback to try, trying to say that actually, like, race is very intrinsic to some of the things that we say and do um with yeah within sciences and that pushback is so um it's so overt it's it's like you're you're sort of attacking people's sort of career long like career long progression like you're attacking people's very mm-hmm. like their their life's work and sort of she's just trying to say, look, like, we've got values. We can't say that the people that we work from didn't have values as well. I know, but I think, as a, well, I don't know, but I would say that a purist would argue, I'm not looking at the people, I'm looking at whatever I'm studying, be it the genes at the moment. So mm-hmm. genes are not influenced by values. They are whatever they are biologically mm-hmm. or chemically, or I'm looking at it at that level. So mm-hmm. they try to be, I guess, in our terms, pure a priori, like Kantian, abstract. Yeah. And in that abstract moment, so that's that's how I understand things. And But we know, as sociologists, that abstractness, that it doesn't exist, it's not no. real. Mm-hmm. But science has conceived of itself in that abstract mentality. So I do an experiment in a sealed environment, and it's, it, I've done it in such a way, is it in a deductive method, so that you can look at my results, my findings, and critique my findings, and if necessary, prove my experiment to prove me wrong. Yeah, it's funny. I I recently listened to a podcast on the replication crisis, sort of that happened in sociology. There was actually an experiment that was done by someone um, about precognition. So it was this weird sort of test that was done to kind of prove that people had precognition, right? So what does precognition? That they were they, they were basically psychic, right? Mm. Like they could fore- foresee things, and and what they found, a lot of scientists, psychologists, then said, okay, let's try to replicate this because it was published, and then it didn't replicate, and then they were like, wait what if other things don't replicate? And then they did like a multi kind of study of different you know, canonical findings to see if there was the ability to replicate. And in a lot of those cases, they just wouldn't replicate. And so now people are going back. And the thing is that there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of status in an academic context to replicate certain things, right? It's always about finding something new. So people don't go back and they don't, you know, replicate these studies. And so I think this issue of replication, you know, can be very problematic. But I think that it, 
it has to, we have to reconceive of what science does and, and, and can do. That it has truth value, that it has empirical rigor, but that it's consensus-based, that enough scientists have said that, you know, this particular finding is robust enough that we can go forward with it with a high degree of a sense that it, it is, you know, going to work. And we can put it into practice. But if something else comes up and shows that there's a better way or, or that the finding is flawed, we have to be open to that. But that's not what we want from science. <laughs> we want, you know, this is going to work. And it's, it's true for eternity. Um, but we know through the history of scientific revolutions that that's not the case, right? We think something is true for a long period of time until enough evidence comes together to say that actually, no, we've been looking at it wrong. And it's having enough people of different backgrounds in the room to say that there are, you know, that standpoint theory, right? That there is something about coming from a marginalized space that's going to give you insights and drive you to ask questions that other people won't. <laughs> this is the situation science got itself into, but because it's elevated itself and replaced certain things, serves the same function as religion almost used to say. So people look at it unquestioningly now, mm -hmm. and it has the answers to solve everything, and it, it puts itself in that way. So the coming... Uh, crisis in world hunger so genetically modified crops so essentially now we're going to start playing god in inverted commas and we start making our own foods mm -hmm. so we can start tailoring diets to make you more efficient make you being a better human yeah and it's that kind of godlike quote that the idea that science is right yeah and i think it becomes very dangerous because what happens is if I think, you know, being able to say that science can be empirically robust and still be value-laden, um, so you can have trust in science when there's a high degree of evidence that people who are trained have said that it, it is the case. So in the case of vaccines, for example, one thing that I find really interesting is around the issue of genetically modified foods. And looking at the evidence around impacts on health, there's nothing really to suggest that there's health differences in like organic and non-organic uh, food or genetically modified food in, in terms of genetically modified food damaging our health. There's nothing there. So I don't, you know, for me, I'll have something that's genetically modified. But when I've decided to stay away from genetically modified food, it's because it is being produced by large agribusiness companies that have really bad labor practices and that are doing things, you know, it's not about alleviating hunger, it's about, you know, producing a crop that is resistant to their own pesticides so they can dominate the market. And also, you know, having monocultures rather than diverse food sources. My opposition to genetically modified foods is more on the political side. But I think that the problem and the danger is that science has become really politicized to such an extent that, you know, there's this, the anti-expert kind of, you know, movement that, you know, they're elitist and they're trying to take advantage of us and all of that. Yeah, I find it, it's very hard because you have to navigate enough skepticism to make science more diverse and inclusive, but then also argue it's robust enough that we can operate on the assumption that climate change is happening and that vaccines are not causing autism. The problem with science is, since its inception, it's always been used in the service of 
So be it in the kind of early voyages of discovery, be it in the kind of colonial movement, be it in vaccinations, it's in the service of, and even when they're making great discoveries, it's being weaponized. So going to the, nuclear, the nuclear bombs and uh, Agent Orange and all these things, it's in the service of, and so science has never been this how it how it perceives itself as that true academic thing. So how it looks down on all the other sciences as being so it looks like the social sciences being something not the truth, not the truth. Mm. So it sees itself as the truth. Mm. Yeah, but it's always been used in the service of, and therein lies the issue. How do you detach something which is ever since I can un- what well, my kind of understanding has been used in the service of the elites. And it's been damaging, you know, look at the Tuskegee experiment <laughs> or, you know, I can understand, you know, communities in Nigeria or Pakistan really not trusting vaccinations because, you know, there's a real <laughs> history of testing that I think is is highly problematic. And so I think like it has to be very inclusive in, in sort of socio-cultural and historical background and giving context to how science has been used as a tool of patriarchy and domination and colonialism and in the service of war, you know, ways that are, you know, that, that have to be addressed. You mentioned just briefly, um, Bentina, about the anti-vaxxers. Mm-hmm. I feel like that is something culturally that is possibly going to get more of a prominence here. Yeah. Like some of the people like within my everyday that I'm hearing say stuff about that vaccinations. I'm like, what? Why? Where did you get that from? Like I, I can see the globalisation of anti-vaccine. Like you can see it coming to yeah. Britain. Like obviously that people that have been anti-vaccinations have always existed is existed mm-hmm. in Britain but like it's very much a movement in the in North America isn't it yeah. like it's got money behind it it's got yeah. religion behind it it's got culture behind it you can so see that happening and, here and to bring it back to the discussion of food i see a big affinity between anti-vaxxers and you know, very neoliberal, high-end food cultures. Um, because it is sort of the upperly m- mobile, you know, upper-middle-class upper white women who are moving towards this, where it's sort of this um, movement to, like, n- the natural, the, you know, the organic, the, um, you know, the sort of this purity culture mm. that, you know, and contamination comes into that as well. So many actresses, Jessica Biel, yeah. but, but there's a whole There's a whole new movie, there's a whole movie kind of about veganism, like mm-hmm. a massive movie, but Hollywood budget, Arnold Schwarzenegger, isn't it? And they oh, ten- no, no, it's out. It's on it's Netflix. A, it's on Netflix, I have no it's idea. It's on Netflix. Yeah, no, and, but, you know, I was watching it, right? And it's all about veganism and vegetarianism and it's got all the athletes and stuff and it's funded by Arnold Schwarzenegger, I think Lewis Hamilton. But basically, like, I watch it, it's quite good, mm-hmm. but it's funded by the big um, corporations. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. what, so what's happening But But, did, did, but like, this, this is what I feel at the moment is about this kind of food, food culture and tied in, ties in with like, the kind of this idea of like these private companies it's for a certain group of people who have the funds to do that, right? Yeah. And the the kind of lower classes are not... You're going to be either eating rubbish or you yes. won't get those tailored diets. or yeah. you, Either way, you're getting left out. You're being excluded yeah. from this. Yeah. And 
food is food is essential for living yes. right and we've spent eight spent years of food production we were rural for a long part Sorry, of our lives the game changes by the way <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I said, we've rural for a long part of our lives but all of a sudden since the industrialization a group of a, a small group of people have monopolized food production in the 21st century where there's a big thing about climate change and how much methane gas we're putting out through farming and stuff as a working class person i can't buy those vegan meals yeah. Just prohibitive. I don't understand what's going on here. It's so complicated because you can get into discussions of, like, pathologizing fatness. One part of it, yeah. right? And then performing motherhood, that you want to have these because, you know, you're the perfect mother for your child. There are gender issues where it's interesting that it's Lewis Hamilton and Schwarzenegger who are behind this because veganism, you know, has often been coded feminine. Right, um, white feminine, yeah, white and meat well. is yeah, yeah. been coded masculine, mm. and so it's less like no, we can now market vegans to you know you still can be a man and be a vegan that kind of thing. Mm. Vegan athletes, you know, there's articles mm-hmm. on that as well. Um, but I, I, you know, there's so many things that are going into that, and I think I think a big thing is it, you know comes down to pathologizing fatness as being like a major thing here, um, purity culture and sort of this natural co-optation of of you know bohemianism and and um, you know blogging and doing these kind of wellness cultural you know performances and that it is a performance because you're performing this for others to mm-hmm. show that you are you know x y and z a specific kind of person and so I think that a lot of it comes down to those cultural issues and then and being anti-vaccine is being built into those I've been training for over 20 years and so I see this trend, and they don't have, like you said, it's a performance. They're going to the gym not to train, just to be seen to yeah. be trained. Mm-hmm. And so I'll see them, because I'll be there every day, but I'll see them over a period of time, they look the same. They'll buy all their meals, and they'll fund all these industries that's kind of sprung up around them. So there's someone that will provide all your meals seven days a week. Yes. There's someone who do your training for you, provide your training plan for the rest of your year. Mm-hmm. So there's all these industries that kind of sprang up around this one individual. But yet you, you look the same. CBD oils well Yeah, now. you look the same. You don't change. But somehow, by having these things, it's like having an iPhone. Your virtue signal. You're telling yes. you where you belong, where I belong in this structure. And to me, that is and someone who does these things. So be it for my things, the gym, for someone who collects whatever it is. These people are, are not claiming the authentic. I get upset because they're not authentic. Yeah. And Why are you authentic? No, right? no, no. Because when you when you when you have a passion for something, you're in it, right? But these yeah. people are not in it. They're just doing it for virtue. So you feel like they're a thing about cultural appropriation. You're appropriate in my culture. Right. For what end? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And and I um, in a lot of uh, research around like critical fat studies, you know, it comes down to um, sort of a fear of fatness as well, right? And and how we pathologize fatness. Um, when you look at some of the actual literature, you know, looking at a person does not tell you how healthy you are, where you can, you know, be quite slim and have high cholesterol, mm-hmm. right? So it's not kind of causal in that way. Um, but I think that, but th- yeah, and it, and it becomes, for me, it becomes almost a, an issue of performance also, because I can sit down and say that, right? Like, pathologizing fatness and you know having a more kind of inclusive approach to bodies and sizes and you know you know why why do we sort of approach it in this way but then you know in the performance of your daily life 
you know, you still feel guilty if you don't go to the gym or, you, mm. you know, you feel, still feel guilty if you do this or you gained a couple of pounds on vacation. And so it's, it's this, like, how do you break out of these kinds of, of strictures and norms um, in a way that is not neoliberal and individual? Because a lot of this is responsibilizing health too, right? Like, you can take care of it. It's all on you rather than having, you know, a social model of health where we're talking about, you know, wellness within a community. Clean air, for one. Yeah. Like, we're in London now, we've got air that is toxic, it's not, and, like, but it's up to us to to take control of our health. But then you find that's a classic capitalist trick, like, it's like, the neoliberal, it's, it's down to the individual, pull yourselves up, get your, sort yourselves yeah. up. But it's, like I said, it's even interesting how people talk to you. So people come up to me and say, do you know many steps I've done today? I'm like, no. Oh, that's no. Yeah. 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 Oh, did you hear Fitbit? They're collecting our data. Mm-hmm. They're collecting Google, Google. have bought it, yeah, yeah. and they're going to collect the <gasps> So yeah. what does that mean? Yeah, yeah. So it's going to be like you know, like where you where you walk and mm-hmm. how much and oh what you can God. target and you know, like yeah, yeah. But yeah, but 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 that makes sense. It goes back to our earlier point of that ever increasing ever increasing efficiency, right? To be su- to well. be super efficient, right? That's how I'm selling it to you. To make yeah. your life yeah. more efficient, make your life more convenient. I'll tell you how many steps you need to be perfect to lose that weight. To look so you can go on Instagram, which is my friend's site. So you go on my friend's site, and we can all make lots of money. It's to, for you to live that aspirational life yeah. that and we I say think, is good. I think that it's also built into the technologies and then displayed on Instagram. Instagram, in, mm-hmm. you know, and having these wellness gurus on online uh, and developing you know kind of cultures and like cults almost around yeah. who, who is it? I don't even follow this thing what's her name the one they're saying that she's seen what's her chops Skepta what's oh, her and she lost weight with yeah. that geezer and because she obviously is a big singer and she that guy what's his name he's got long hair talks a lot I don't know his name he's one of those wellness guys he cooks food does dancing oh Joe Wicks him horrendous oh. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, it's the same thing, like, <laughs> like the like the goop culture. You oh, know, goop! Oh my god, Gwyneth Paltrow is goop. What is that? What it is isn't it? anything. Is it? Yeah, it yeah. isn't anything. It's just about like. What is it? Uh, she's got her own movement. But, uh, yeah. it's like a. It yeah, is a bit uh, of a uh, cult. Yeah, it's a health and wellness like um, lifestyle website paired with you know conventions paired with you know um sort of pseudo medical professionals that you know and there was um there was a case there's actually a woman um uh jennifer jennifer gunther i think her name is she's a gynecologist um i think she lives in canada now but maybe it's in the states she just wrote a book called the vagina bible and it's about like sort of demystifying uh, women's sort of reproductive health. Mm-hmm. Super accessible. Um, but she's sort of now been called the enemy of goop because she went after Gwyneth Paltrow's whole like um, the jade eggs that, she, you know, she was like selling jade eggs that she was telling women to put into their vaginas what? as like a wellness kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. healing thing. Are you serious? Yes. And, Is this real? Yeah, yeah and yeah, so yeah, Jennifer yeah. Gun- um, Gunther as a doctor you know, wrote a long article saying like, this is harmful, that there is no basis for this. This And, and um, Goop, Gwyneth Paltrow was actually had to take them off the shelves because it, it was 
harmful. Like, but but this is and this is quite interesting. So this kind of speaks of that kind of that line between magic and science still like yeah. that that kind of line where witchcraft sit and so witch doctors say things like that in places in, in certain places in Africa yeah. so there's that line still that exists in science that kind of tension mm-hmm. where a scientist says no but someone who we kind of respect and revere will say yes it works yeah and people buy into it just like yeah and then I think you bring up a really good point because then you get you know I find it very contradictory too because you know you want to differentiate between like the snake oil salesperson this what is Paltrow but then you also don't want to you know take any kind of um, value away from like traditional health practices yes. right yeah. like ones that are authentic and ones that aren't harmful um, you know where out of you know like Chinese medicine like there are parts of Chinese medicine that you know it okay fine if it's not used in place that, like if you have cancer and you're not taking something in lieu of like treatment that you uh, want to respect those alternative health practices because they're cultural artifacts and they're important but then you don't want to do it so much that something like goop becomes like it's such a tension isn't it yeah I think the cultural artifacts ones they tend to, you recognise them by the, it's how they kind of manifest themselves. They're not profit-driven per se. Mm-hmm. But things like Goop are structured in the end with high prices. So a good example is that Alex Jones, all the products he sold for survival was to finance his show. <laughs> yeah. So he had yeah. all these kind of crazy things, these mad mixtures, but to survive, but to make money to for to promote his show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think the snake old man will manifest itself in its in its true capitalist nature. I like Dr. Oz. Like he's like a doctor doctor and he's like talking about, you know, having like raspberry ketones are gonna make you lose twenty pounds. Mm-hmm. Right? He was cited by the, the like I've you, taken them before. Yeah. 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 Now, I've 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 bought in like I can't oh. say that I'm exempt <laughs> from this culture. Like I've definitely gone through acai berries. Yeah. Yeah, raspberry ketones like I've I do this. a lot of work on superfoods. Oh okay. Yeah. 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 So, and have, I'll do the same thing, yeah. like shiitake mushroom dried yeah. and like, yeah. No, I, I think it's very hard to disentangle and mm-hmm. move yourself from. It is. Can we just talk about, because it's really interesting, we did read about it, race and blood as well. Yes. Can you break this down? Because you did a, it's a critique of the Red Cross yeah. and what they were talk, talking about ethnicity. Mm-hmm. Part of, discursive, part scientific. So what was happening was that there were calls from certain you know NGOs for having more donations for people like from for minorities that we need more minorities, racialized people to donate blood. And the argument was that it was because you know they were more likely to have a kind of blood that would be you know useful or were in like short supply my argument was that that was a very harmful way of framing it because it was suggesting or creating a discourse or creating a kind of truism that there was a distinction between brown blood and black blood and you know asian blood and um but that that's not how it sort of works right you can't it's a better way to go about it is saying that we are, you know, we don't have enough of this kind of blood. You know, this uh, particular, you know, say AB positive or something. And that um, a call for more people to donate would would be better because the way it was being framed was 
reinscribing race again and saying that there was differences between the kinds of blood that people of color have mm-hmm. versus people who are white. So when we see stuff like even within like London, like people saying black people don't give enough, don't give blood, like that's a problem. How do we rectify that? sort of discourse yes so you have to look at the structures of you know what are preventing we have to sort of it's hard to do but Mm -hmm. we have to sort of say that you know we are 99 percent genetically similar what has happened is this group of people has become racialized and they tend to you know and we need more blood um not you know, this population, for whatever reason, is disincentivized to donate blood. But we we have to do it or find a way to do it in a way that is not reiterating race because what is being suggested is that there is a difference between white blood and black blood and yes. brown blood. That, that what has come first is the racialization. What I would do is just to say that we need more people to donate blood and it has nothing to do with race. And I think that would be, if race wasn't real, in inverted commas, then that would be the ideal. But race is real. Yeah. And people... Socially. Socially. And it's socially real. And if we, if we, if they remove that, then if they, if you approach science in that way, if science says it's not true, mm-hmm. then everything else would fall down. And I can't justify the inequalities mm-hmm. that exist because of race. Yes. It all rests on each other, and it's a it's a straw house, and it's a very fragile house. But yeah. it's one that has to be maintained, and it's maintained regularly. So as companies just reinforce this by shifting race to culture, so the kind of whole shift to Islam mm-hmm. is to shift the way to shift it from race to culture, but it's still talking about race. Yeah, and so what I would say is, groups we have racialized and disempowered are disincentivized to donate blood. What can we do to make sure that we get more people? Involved in blood donation. Oh, that's you know, good. so yeah. it's like you know that that yeah, it's like we it. have done this to these groups, yes. <laughs> and um, you know, yeah, there isn't because that's what I find, and like it's really good to have you sort of confirm that to us because. What I find when I'm seeing like, oh, black Caribbean people don't give enough blood, I'm like, oh, what have they got a black Caribbean blood? Yeah, like, yeah. Do you know what I mean? So no, no, they've just because of yeah. racialization. And, and the way we treat and, and racialized inequalities, it means that they're less likely to give blood and we just need more blood. Yeah, and, and also with um, organ donation. So, like, South Asians don't, you know, tick the box to be organ donors. Um, you know, okay, fine, but why don't we just say that, you know, let's get everyone, you know, to be organ donors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think one is, like I said, the suspicion that, that marginalized communities have of the centre and also, like I said before, that the idea of once you kind of say, once you admit that wrongdoing, we have racialized. Mm-hmm. It's a powerful, so we have done something. But no one actually says, no one, no power admits to doing something. Yeah. So even when they have done something, so for example, the Tuskegee experiment, America. What is that experiment? Sorry, can you explain what it was? So is it, is it in Oklahoma 1926, is it? Yes. Yeah. And, um,. Basically, they gave them some placebos and some were syphilis. Basically, yeah. placebo yeah. and syphilis. They gave, infected with syphilis knowingly. Some had placebos, some syphilis, and let it run its course to see what would happen. It was all given to people who are black. Yeah, yeah. And it was like a test of like you know how how does the disease progress? What works? What doesn't work? It was yeah. 
the laboratory experiment. <laughs> so it was, uh, yeah, yeah. But they they might they might wrong might wrongdoing, but they never apologize, saying we have done something. Yeah. And this is and this is and this is the problem we find ourselves in. Until people are willing to understand how race patriarchy operates and say to the, and say to people that we've marginalized, we have done something. Yeah. And it's led you to be in this situation. Then I find other discussions are quite difficult. Yeah. But it's that very basic acknowledgement right yeah and and it becomes really difficult too because you know the idea of having you know having more people of color in medical trials are is is compelling right um you know that's what we always say for like women right but there are kind of you know biological differences there you know, i always think of the one of, of um you know the fact that seat belts were tested on like white men of a certain size and so that even airbags and mm. so like it was so safety know, is yeah for women it wasn't considering the impact of a airbag on a smaller frame oh, okay. and so now that the you know so including um you know women into medical trials and things like that i think is important but then if you make the same argument for people of color it's like hard because like you want to say that because of course there has to be more diversity within medical trials. But if our thesis is that race is a fiction, why are we arguing that? <clears throat> yeah. So yeah. it becomes very hard. It's like a paradox. Yeah, I never, I never thought that way. Yeah. Because yeah. if you start doing, you start creating that. You you make race an issue again. Yeah. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah, and I'm still kind of trying to tease it out in some mm -hmm. of the work that I'm doing now around um, body mass index. Mm -hmm. and so Which is bullshit, apparently. Oh, it's total bullshit, yeah. But, but it's completely... It's mad, isn't it? But, I, and even at school, when I'm at school, when I'm at school, like, back in the day, they're like, yeah, like, let's work out your BMI. It was used first by insurance companies to oh kind, you know, that... Oh, Yeah, and so then it was incorporated <laughs> as a good shortcut to designate health within patients by doctors because it was like an easy thing but the thing is it doesn't consider like muscle to fat and it doesn't you mm. know you know so it would say something like someone like george clooney is obese but yeah. of course not right but like i said it's, uh, technically i'm obese right but but <laughs> i find that once you so once you're in it and you're studying it properly then you kind of understand it yeah. But most people approach it, and it's sold on a kind of superficial package basis. So BMI, health, health, a healthy lifestyle, mm -hmm. all that stuff. But once, if you sat there and actually read into it, you'd understand it's not healthy. Yeah. So this is... And the, the thing that I found, one of the other criticisms of BMI is that it is based on, like, the same sort of white man stereotype, right? But, and so it doesn't incorporate... Um, people of color and their distinctive bodies but then you're kind of like well no because if race is a fiction how can you say that there is something genetically you know a certain kind of body size mm. for a certain race so you know i'm trying to say that it seems like a good step to say that you know we have to incorporate diverse bodies into the way that we um study body size and health but it shouldn't be racialized <laughs> Um, but we still do that because it's a kind of virtue signaling of, well, it's more diverse. So what can we do? What can we use instead of BMI? There are other ways, like um, like caliper tests are more. Um, but the other thing, too, is that, you know, even if you test for, like, body fat 
is not causally connected. Like, you can't say that a person who has this percentage of body fat will have this disease. Because that's not sort of how it works. It's just we have we have kind of created a fetish out of size and you know and what you know what we think of people of a certain size and what we think about their health status, which is just not you know it's so like embedded within our popular discourse, media. But, uh, like, like I'm doing a thing at the moment looking at the the body as a form of work, right? So, so how certain groups, marginalised groups, use the body as a form of work to uh, to get them certain kind of um, things that they their marginalised communities seeking to get things that are, they've been excluded from. So respect. Mm-hmm. So they don't they do unpaid work. The unpaid work is visualised through their body. Yeah. So yeah. it's the body at the moment is a site of is a new kind of forefront for capitalism, right? So from uh, stem cell research to what you eat, mm-hmm. it's a site of making money. But it's also a site of respectability, right? If yeah, you look but at like it's like a, a body project. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It's mad. Yeah. Start cloning. We're going to start cloning. <laughs> <laughs> we are going to have to finish then, Tina. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. That was like... It's, it, it's really interesting because when you start with your work, I was like, oh my God, this is going to be a mega science work. <laughs> actually, like, it's not, like, it's so sociological. Like, like, it's it's so relatable. But you can, relatable see, you, well. you can see it in your de- everyday life, man. Yeah. Like, like, like I said, the, the growth of gyms, like I said, I, like I said, going back to when I first done my first show, there was no social media, no nothing. Then all of a sudden social media comes out yeah. and a whole new group of people have come in and they look different. They behave differently. Yeah. And one thing they always have, always have. It's not Always. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes have have iPads. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and just going back, and also like relating it to the everyday, like particularly people that um, that are like me that sometimes see these genetic testing things and like, oh my god, I want to know where I'm from. Like, actually look at the detail. Like, what is this yeah. company? What are they doing? How are they making money from you? Like, mm-hmm. what is the actual? What's the sampling? Like, all these different things is so. Yeah. important and actually like there are other ways to find out about belonging than sending your dna to some multinational i'm telling you they're cloning everyone i swear down <laughs> <laughs> thank you thank you so thank much you, tina. Thank, thank you tina. thank you that was brilliant all the way down from newcastle thank yeah. you thank you tina thank you um listeners thank you for your support um if you are able to please do consider joining our patreon or um patreon um, funds goes towards keeping the podcast going um we'll be back next week you've been listening to surviving society with Chantal and tiso please like rate and subscribe you can also find more of us on twitter and instagram